Section 2. In taking anarchy for our ideal of political organization, we are only giving expression to another marked tendency of human progress. Whenever European societies have developed up to a certain point, they have shaken off the yoke of authority and substituted a system founded roughly more or less on the principles of individual liberty. And history shows us that these periods of partial or general revolution when the governments were overthrown, were also periods of sudden progress, both in the economic and the intellectual field. Now it is the enfranchisement of the communes, whose monuments, produced by the free labor of the guilds, have never been surpassed. Now it is the peasant rising, which brought about the Reformation and imperiled the papacy. And then again, it is the society, free for a brief space, which was created at the other side of the Atlantic, by the malcontents from the old world. Further, if we observe the present development of civilized peoples, we see, most unmistakably, a movement ever more and more marked to limit the sphere of action of the government, and to allow more and more liberty to the individual. This evolution is going on before our eyes, though cumbered by the ruins and rubbish of old institutions and old superstitions. Like all evolutions, it only waits a revolution to overthrow the old obstacles which block the way, that it may find free scope in a regenerated society. After having striven long in vain to solve the insoluble problem, the problem of constructing a government which will constrain the individual to obedience without itself ceasing to be the servant of society, men at last attempt to free themselves from every form of government and to satisfy their need for organization by a free contract between individuals and groups pursuing the same aim. The independence of each small territorial unit becomes a pressing need. Mutual agreement replaces law, and everywhere regulates individual interests in view of a common object. All that was once looked on as a function of the government is today called in question. Things are arranged more easily and more satisfactorily without the intervention of the state. And in studying the progress made in this direction, we are led to conclude that the tendency of the human race is to reduce government interference to zero, in fact, to abolish the state, the personification of injustice, oppression, and monopoly. We can already catch glimpses of a world in which the bonds which bind the individual are no longer laws but social habits. The result of the need felt by each one of us to seek the support, the cooperation, the sympathy of his neighbors. Assuredly, the idea of a society without a state will give rise to at least as many objections as the political economy of a society without private capital. We have all been brought up from our childhood to regard the state as a sort of providence. All our education, the Roman history we learned at school, the Byzantine code which we studied later under the name of Roman law, and the various sciences taught at the universities accustom us to believe in government and in the virtues of the state providential. To maintain this superstition, whole systems of philosophy have been elaborated and taught. All politics are based on this principle, and each politician, whatever his colors, comes forward and says to the people, Give me the power, and I both can and will free you from the miseries which press so heavily upon you. From the cradle to the grave, all our actions are guided by this principle. Open any book on sociology or jurisprudence, and you will find there the government, its organization, 
its acts, filling so large a place that we come to believe that there is nothing outside the government and the world of statesmen. The press teaches us the same in every conceivable way. Whole columns are devoted to parliamentary debates and to political intrigues. The vast everyday life of a nation is barely mentioned in a few lines when dealing with economic subjects, law, or in divers' facts relating to police cases. And when you read these newspapers, you hardly think of the incalculable number of beings, all humanity, so to say, who grow up and die, who know sorrow, who work and consume, think and create outside the few encumbering personages who grow up and die, who know sorrow, who work and consume, think and create, outside the few encumbering personages who have been so magnified that humanity is hidden by their shadows, enlarged by our ignorance. And yet, as soon as we pass from printed matter to life itself, as soon as we throw a glance at society, we are struck by the infinitesimal part played by the government. Balzac already remarked how millions of peasants spend the whole of their lives without knowing anything about the state, save the heavy taxes they are compelled to pay. Every day, millions of transactions are made without government intervention, and the greatest of them, those of commerce and of the exchange, are carried on in such a way that the government could not be appealed to if one of the contracting parties had the intention of not fulfilling his agreement. Should you speak to a man who understands commerce, he will tell you that the everyday business transacted by merchants would be absolutely impossible were it not based on mutual confidence. The habit of keeping his word, the desire not to lose his credit, amply suffice to maintain this relative honesty. The man who does not feel the slightest remorse when poisoning his customers with noxious drugs covered with pompous labels thinks he is in honor bound to keep his engagements. Now, if this relative morality has developed under present conditions when enrichment is the only incentive and the only aim, can we doubt its rapid progress when appropriation of the fruits of others' labor will no longer be the basis of society? Another striking fact, which especially characterizes our generation, speaks still more in favor of our ideas. It is the continual extension of the field of enterprise due to private initiative and the prodigious development of free groups of all kinds. We shall discuss this more at length in the chapter devoted to free agreement. Suffice it to mention that the facts are so numerous and so customary that they are the essence of the second half of the 19th century, even though political and socialist writers ignore them, always preferring to talk to us about the functions of government. These organizations, free and infinitely varied, are so natural an outcome of our civilization. They expand so rapidly and group themselves with so much ease. They are so necessary a result of the continual growth of the needs of civilized man. And lastly, they so advantageously replace governmental interference that we must recognize in them a factor of growing importance in the life of societies. If they do not yet spread over the whole of the manifestations of life, it is that they find an insurmountable obstacle in the poverty of the worker, in the castes of present society, in the private appropriation of capital, and in the state. Abolish these obstacles, and you will see them covering the immense field of civilized man's activity. The history of the last 50 years furnishes a living proof that representative government 
is impotent to discharge the functions we have sought to assign to it. In days to come, the 19th century will be quoted as having witnessed the failure of parliamentarianism. But this impotence is becoming evident to all. The faults of parliamentarianism and the inherent vices of the representative principle are self-evident, and the few thinkers who have made a critical study of them, J.S. Mill and Leverdays, did but give literary form to the popular dissatisfaction. It is not difficult indeed to see the absurdity of naming a few men and saying to them, make laws regulating all our spheres of activity, although not one of you knows anything about them. We are beginning to see that government by majorities means abandoning all the affairs of the country to the tidewaiters who make up the majorities in the House and in election committees, to those, in a word, who have no opinion of their own. But mankind is seeking and already finding new issues. The International Postal Union, the Railway Unions, and the Learned Societies give us examples of solutions based on free agreement in place instead of law. Today, when groups scattered far and wide wish to organize themselves for some object or other, they no longer elect an international parliament of jacks of all trades. No. Where it is not possible to meet directly or come to an agreement by correspondence, delegates versed in the question at issue are sent to treat with the instructions, endeavor to come to an agreement on such or such a question, and then return, not with a law in your pocket, but with a proposition of agreement which we may or may not accept. Such is the method of the great industrial companies, the learned societies, and the associations of every description, which already cover Europe and the United States. And such should be the method of an emancipated society. While bringing about expropriation, society cannot continue to organize itself on the principle of parliamentary representation. A society founded on serfdom is in keeping with absolute monarchy. A society based on the wage system and the exploitation of the masses by the capitalists finds its political expression in parliamentarianism. But a free society, regaining possession of the common inheritance, must seek, in free groups and free federations of groups, a new organization, in harmony with the new economic phase of history. Every economic phase has a political phase corresponding to it, and it would be impossible to touch property without finding at the same time a new mode of political life.